This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. It's good to have you here for episode 56 of the show. Let's get right to it. In 1972, the music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences created a rule that only three songs would be nominated for the Oscar if there were fewer than 20 eligible songs in a given year. That rule never needed to be enacted until 1988, when, for the first time since nominations were limited to five in 1956, only 19 songs were eligible for nomination consideration. That automatically meant that, no matter how many of these 19 songs were great, only three would make the final cut. That made the preferential ballot for nominations voting very important in 1988. As a reminder, the preferential ballot required a voter to list their song choices in ranked order, with the song they really wanted to nominate going in the number one position, and so on down the line. Depending on the number of music branch voters who submitted a ballot, a song would need to reach a specific number of number one votes in the first round of counting to earn a nomination. With such a small number of nominee slots available, the number of needed votes would be higher in 1988. For example, if 200 members of the music branch returned their nominations ballot, a song would need 68 members to put the song in the first spot to automatically get nominated. If five nominees were available in 1988, that number would be 41. As we know, voting results are not made public, so we won't know if the three songs officially nominated all received that magic number in the first round, or if ballots needed to be redistributed and count the song at the number two spot on the ballot to keep going. Once the final list of song submissions was verified, the nomination ballot that went out to music branch members would have only have three spaces for voters to list their top songs. It probably came as a surprise to many voters. Of the four nominated songwriters for the three nominated songs in 1988, Phil Collins was the only one who was a previous Oscar nominee. He lost his first Oscar bid four years earlier when, against all odds, was beaten by I Just Called to Say I Love You. Collins probably wasn't crying over spilled milk in the time since then. He was becoming an even bigger solo artist than he was the drummer and lead vocalist for the band Genesis. His album from 1984, No Jacket Required, remains his most successful album, having contained a couple of songs that made the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1985. Genesis had a reunion in 1985 with the album Invisible Touch, then the stress of touring and writing so many hit songs took its toll. Phil Collins took a break for a couple of years, then decided to pivot and see if he could parlay his success as a singer into some success as an actor. In 1988, Collins starred in the movie Buster, a fictional depiction of the events surrounding the great train robbery of 1963 in the UK. The movie isn't really about the train robbery, but Buster's run from the law and the love between he and his wife, June. 
One of the three original songs Collins wrote with Lamont Dozier for the film highlights this love story. It's called Two Hearts, and we have to wait until the end credits to hear it. The other two songs aren't too memorable, so they weren't going to get an Oscar nomination. One is a song performed briefly when Buster and his family arrive in Mexico while on the run from the British police. And I don't want to forget to mention Groovy Kind of Love, which Phil Collins performs in voiceover near the end of the movie when Buster is arrested. That song was written in 1965 when the arrest took place by Carol Bayer Sager and Tony Wine. Phil Collins' version was a big hit, becoming a number one song in the United Kingdom and in the United States in fall 1988. Two Hearts starts during the epilogue when we see an older Buster and June running a flower stand in London, seemingly happy with how life turned out. The fact that they are still together is punctuated by two hearts, and the lyrics that tell of people whose love reaches across oceans, which it did in the movie as June returned to London while Buster stayed in Mexico.
The song sounds very much like it was written in the 1960s. It has the same feel as You Can't Hurry Love, the popular song by the Supremes that Phil Collins covered in 1982. The similarities between Two Hearts and You Can't Hurry Love are no accident. Lamont Dozier wrote the music for Two Hearts and also co-wrote You Can't Hurry Love for the Supremes during his stint as a songwriter in Motown in the 1960s. Dozier was probably one of the most successful songwriters in the 1960s, not only in Motown, but in the United States. And until now, you probably never heard of him. He and brothers Brian and Edward Holland wrote 10 songs for the Supremes that went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 from 1964 to 1968. In addition to the Supremes, the trio wrote for the Four Tops, Martha and the Vandellas, and Marvin Gaye. They left Motown when they couldn't reach a new contract agreement, and the trio tried to create new record labels. But the venture wasn't very profitable, and Lamont Dozier set off on his own. Phil Collins hadn't met Delmont Dozier when he made his recording of You Can't Hurry Love in 1982, but the two finally met in 1985 backstage at one of Collins' shows in Los Angeles. Dozier was a big fan of the way Collins covered You Can't Hurry Love, and naturally, Collins knew who Dozier was. The two hit it off immediately and became instant friends. When Collins called Dozier to hire him as music supervisor for Buster, Dozier agreed not only to that, but to write a couple of original songs. Collins didn't have any interest in participating in the songwriting process, choosing to focus on his acting and trusting Dozier's instincts. After hearing the plot of the movie, I knew that the right music for that particular time was early Motown, Dozier said, adding that with two hearts, he, quote, came up with the feeling of Motown 1960s that I had a part in creating. I had listened to the way Phil approached You Can't Hurry Love, and I knew that two hearts would work for him. End quote. After listening to the melody of Two Hearts, Collins agreed to write lyrics. It was a good choice. Not only was it the second number one song for Phil Collins in a span of three months, but it went to number one in late January 1989, just in time for his fellow members of the Academy's music branch to consider it as one of their top songs of the year. 
Two Hearts is the only Oscar nominee from 1988 to go to number one on the Billboard charts. One of the other songs spent some time on the Billboard charts, but could only barely crack into the top 50. That song is Let the River Run from the movie Working Girl, and it was written by pop star Carly Simon. This is the first Oscar-nominated song to be written by a solo female writer since Dolly Parton wrote 9 to 5 in 1980, and the second movie song that Simon had written. You might remember that she wrote Coming Around Again for the 1986 movie Heartburn, but was likely not eligible for the Oscar because large portions of the film version of the song included the Itsy Bitsy Spider. That film was directed by Mike Nichols, and he wanted Carly Simon back for this comedy about a woman played by Melanie Griffith, who works her way up the corporate ladder by romancing Harrison Ford and undermining her boss, Sigourney Weaver. Let the River Run opens the film in dramatic fashion, with only percussion instruments and piano driving the music before the rallying cry of the lyrics begin. The movie opens on a close shot of the Statue of Liberty that continues to a shot of the Staten Island Ferry taking Griffith's character to work in Manhattan.
All right. I'll pick you up at 5. We'll ride back together. I can't. I got emerging market seminar at 5.30. Jeez, it's your birthday. Can't they emerge without you just this once? What time is my surprise party? What? Come on. Oh, I'm supposed to take you to drinks. Have you home at 7. Okay, I'll cut out early and be home at 7.15, okay? All right. Thank you very much. Sorry. <laughs> The lyrics might seem confusing, mentioning a new Jerusalem and sons and daughters coming out of a fog. But it makes sense in the context of the movie, where Griffith's Tess dreams big of being an important executive with big ideas. In the song, Carly Simon and her chorus sing about the new Jerusalem, the new promised land that dreamers like Tess will build. The opening sequence was so grand with its images of the Hudson River, the Statue of Liberty, and the gleaming steel buildings that it seemed to call up a Walt Whitman feel, Carly Simon said in an interview in February 1989. She said she thought about removing the phrase, the New Jerusalem, but kept it because, quote, it gave New York an aura of holiness, as though it were the promised land, end quote. Tess is on her way to building this new Jerusalem at the end of the film when she finally becomes the boss. As she calls her friend Sin to give her the good news, Sin rejoices to her co-workers about Tess's new job before we get an extended shot of Tess in her office that pulls back to show the Manhattan skyline while in an extended performance of Let the River Run plays.
listed on the Wikipedia page for Let the River Run as a background singer on the song, is Casey Kissick, who had been lingering in obscurity for 11 years since recording the Oscar-winning song You Light Up My Life in 1977. You might remember that after that song was recorded, songwriter and film director Joseph Brooks treated Kissick badly, refusing to pay her after she reportedly rebuffed his sexual advances. Kissick sued Brooks, and they eventually settled out of court. Kissick had performed a couple of songs and movies in the late 1970s and early 1980s, but this is the first time she's part of an Oscar-nominated song since 1977. Let the River Run was not planned to be released as a single. It was going to stand on its own merits, and probably because no one thought it would play well on the radio. But just after the Oscar nominations were announced, and while Working Girl was working its way to earning more than $100 million in the U.S., Carly Simon returned to the studio to record a radio-friendly version of the song. It has a different opening, but most of it is the same. It played well on the radio, but could only get as high as number 49 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The third nominee for original song was also not planned to be a commercial release, and those in charge of its production didn't change their mind after it became an Academy Award nominee. The title of the song is Calling You, and it comes from the movie Baghdad Cafe. I have a hard time describing the plot of the movie because it rambles and takes a few tangents. Essentially, the movie is about the friendship that two jilted wives form as they run a diner and motel in the middle of the Mojave Desert in California. Marianne Sagebrecht plays a German woman named Yasmin, who leaves her husband during a road trip through California and lands at the Baghdad Cafe where CCH Pounder's Brenda is the owner. Renowned film critic Roger Ebert loved the movie, saying the characters were vibrating with life and that director Percy Adline had a firm handle on the film. I don't agree with that, and I'm not saying every good movie has to have a straightforward plot where characters have straightforward lives, but just like Roger Ebert said once, a movie is good when you wish you could hang out with the characters long after the movie is over. I was very glad the movie was over and had no interest in knowing more about these people. The nominated song haunts us throughout the film, performed two times in full by gospel singer Javetta Steele, and a couple more times just as the chorus. Just as the film is set in a desolate part of the United States, the song is desolate in its instrumentation. There are only keyboards and a harmonica playing under Steele's vocal and it seems like an echo effect has been added. The song is performed first over the opening credits as Yasmin walks along the empty highway with her suitcase, with no particular destination in mind after leaving her husband. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you can figure out that she's going to make her way to Brenda's Cafe. A desert road from Vegas to nowhere Someplace better than where you've been A coffee machine that needs some fixing In a little cafe just around the bend
The song comes from Brenda's perspective, complaining about the broken coffee machine and her crying grandson. It suggests that she's been looking for someone to brighten up her dull life, and Yasmin seems to be the answer to this call. That becomes clear when we hear just the chorus of the song as Yasmin arrives at the cafe. The second time the full version of the song is heard comes near the end of the movie, when Yasmin returns to the cafe after being forced to leave when her visitor visa expires. How she returns is not explained, but no one seems to care. Brenda's call to bring Yasmin back into their improved lives has been answered. Calling You was written by Bob Telson, who was a musical prodigy at age five. He was part of a rock band while growing up in Brooklyn and spent some time in France studying music theory. In 1985, he earned Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award nominations for The Gospel at Colonus, an adaptation of the Oedipus tale that featured songs written by Telson and Lee Brewer. The story is acted out by an all-black cast to put a modern spin on the Greek tragedy of Oedipus, and future acting legend Morgan Freeman was among the cast members. Javetta Steele, who would sing Calling You, was also in the cast. New York theater critics remarked how well Telson and Brewer were able to dramatize the plight of black people in the South and highlighted the experimental nature of the casting. Outside of this stage triumph, 
Towson spent much of the 1970s and 1980s playing music and jazz, salsa, and experimental groups. Calling You feels like Bob Telson was able to put his immersion in world music to good use. He released his version of the song on the same soundtrack album as Javetta Steele's version, where he doesn't hit the high notes in the chorus as well. A desert road from Vegas to nowhere Someplace better than where you've been A coffee machine that needs some fixing In a little cafe just around the bend Desert road from Vegas to nowhere. Someplace better than where you've been. A coffee machine that needs some fixing. In a little cafe just around the bend. Hot dry wind 
blows right through me The baby's crying and I can't sleep But I can feel the change it's coming Coming closer, sweet release One of the other 16 songs eligible for an Academy Award nomination in 1988 was the Beach Boys song, Kokomo. It was not only a big deal because it appeared in the Tom Cruise movie Cocktail, but because it made the Beach Boys popular again, about 10 years after their last big hit song. But the hype around it and its eventual success didn't add up to an Oscar nomination. After John Phillips and Scott McKenzie wrote some of the song, they handed it over to Beach Boys member Brian Love and its producer, Terry Melcher. There was some good stuff in Phillips's and McKenzie's version, but it was Brian Love who put in the famous chorus listing six tropical places in the Caribbeans, including Bermuda and Jamaica. The song plays for only one minute in the movie, but when the full version featured on the radio, everyone went mad for it, even those who were barely alive when the Beach Boys were at their peak. Rotten 
Kokomo was credited to the Beach Boys, but the performance was missing Brian Wilson, the co-founder of the group back in the late 1950s. There are a lot of different stories floating around about why Wilson was left out of the recording, and each side blames the other for the omission. Even without Brian Wilson, Kokomo went to number one on the Billboard charts, knocking Phil Collins' groovy kind of love off its perch in November 1988. It would become the last number one song for the Beach Boys. One of the most popular songs of 1988 appeared in the movie Beaches and would become one of Bette Midler's signature songs. It's called Wind Beneath My Wings, and unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who you are, it wasn't eligible for an Oscar nomination. The song was written in 1982 by Jeff Silbar and Larry Henley and recorded at least five times before Bette Midler took hold of it in 1988. None of the versions before hers made much of an impression, but when you couple it with the heartbreak behind the song in the movie and Bette Midler's voice, it was hard to deny Wind Beneath My Wings the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in June 1989. Because it was not written specifically for Beaches, Wind Beneath My Wings was not going to appear on the nominations list for the Golden Globes. Though the Hollywood Foreign Press Association had skirted around the rules for The Rose, Bette Midler's last big movie song, they couldn't find a loophole to get Wind Beneath My Wings into the Golden Globe nominations. Kokomo was on that list, as were Let the River Run and Two Hearts. Now the Golden Globes did nominate five songs that year, and the other two nominees might have been in the running for an Oscar nomination along with Kokomo. Those songs were Why Should I Worry from the animated movie Oliver and Company, and the title song from the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito movie, Twins. For the first time in Golden Globes history, two songs tied as the winner of original song. Let the River Run and Two Hearts each won the Golden Globe. So when the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announced its nominees two weeks later, those two songs were immediately the frontrunners. One of the columnists in the Los Angeles Times was happy that Calling You was nominated and that the list was cut down to three that year. Before I talk about the Grammy Award ceremony that took place on February 22, 1989, I want to remind you again that eligibility timeframes for the Grammy Awards is different from the Academy Awards. The Grammy timeline runs from October 1st to September 30th of the next year, so songs released at the end of 1988 weren't eligible for the Grammys until the 1990 ceremony. So that means Two Hearts, from a movie released in summer 1988, didn't have to compete with Let the River Run, which came out Christmas time 1988, at the 1989 Grammys. Two Hearts was competing for Best Movie Song Grammy with Kokomo, and the title song from Cry Freedom, as well as the rousing One Moment in Time that Whitney Houston sang for the NBC coverage of the 1988 Olympics. Phil Collins won his sixth Grammy for the song, his first as a songwriter, and Lamont Dozier won his first Grammy on his first nomination ever at the Grammys, which is a surprise given all the hits he had written in the 1960s for the Supremes. Carly Simon and Phil Collins were not only nominated songwriters, but the original performers of their songs, 
and many hoped Phil Collins would be asked to sing after being shut out by Academy President Gregory Peck in 1985 for Against All Odds. But this year, it wasn't the Academy that was making the decisions about song presentations. It was first-time producer Alan Carr, who hired a Broadway playwright to come up with an 11-minute opening number that featured Snow White coming to Hollywood and falling in love with what she saw. If you're a fan of Academy Awards history, you're aware of the infamous performance Snow White does with actor Rob Lowe as the two sing Proud Mary. It's become one of the most mocked moments in Academy history, and it's likely the reason why none of the original song nominees were performed on the show for the first time since the 1946 ceremony. When the nominations were announced, Carly Simon said her stage fright would be the reason why she would decline to perform Let the River Run at the Oscars, if she were asked. She even said, partly as a joke, that she was thinking of asking a body double to accept the Oscar if she were to win. The statement about performing was not a joke. The comment about not going to the show was a joke. She did attend the Oscars, as did Phil Collins, Lamont Dozier, and Bob Telson. Gregory Hines and Sammy Davis Jr. came out to present the song award. But before they read off the nominees, they introduced a three-minute clip of past standout song performances on the Oscar telecast, including Michael Jackson singing Ben and Sammy Davis Jr. singing Talk to the Animals. One could argue that those three minutes could have been better used to play one minute each of that year's nominated songs. After the short list of nominees was read aloud, Sammy Davis Jr. announced that, unlike the Golden Globes, there wouldn't be a tie for the Oscar for Original Song. Carly Simon won the Oscar outright for Let the River Run, and Hines looked at her in the audience and motioned to her to come to the stage. Before she did, she turned around and acknowledged Phil Collins, who nodded his head in congratulations. The win made history for Carly Simon. Though she wasn't the first woman to be nominated for writing a song by herself, she was the first woman to win the original song Oscar for a song she wrote herself. At the time, five women had already won the Oscar for original song in the first 55 years, standing on the stage with men at their side. Carly Simon's win didn't really register too much with the general public, but it was a milestone. Let the River Run won't be the last nominated song written solely by women, but it felt like a rallying cry for the female songwriters who followed in her footsteps. When Let the River Run beat two hearts, it ended the seven-year streak of number one songs winning the Academy Award. It started with Arthur's theme from 1981, and end it with I've Had the Time of My Life. Lamont Dozier wouldn't write another Oscar-nominated song, but he kept writing a few songs in the early 1990s before stepping away from the music business. He returned in 2004 with a best-of compilation album called Reflections of Lamont Dozier that featured him performing songs he wrote for Motown groups in the 1960s and 1970s. Dozier died in August 2022 at the age of 81, having been inducted into the Songwriting Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Bob Telson was also a one-hit wonder with the Oscars and decided to continue his movie career working on European films. He brought Baghdad Cafe to the stage as a musical with the film's director, Percy Adlon, and it toured Europe in 2004. 
I'll just tell you right now that 1988 was just a small hiccup for movie songs. We're not going to have to worry about the lack of eligible songs for a few more years. Starting in 1989, Disney is going to crank out a lot of movie songs as it starts its renaissance period, while several pop stars put their names in the hat for a chance at Oscar glory. We'll get to that in the next episode. A couple of things before we go. First, I want to give a special thanks to Sadiq Hussein for sponsoring this episode. Second, I just want to spend a minute to thank you all for tuning in to the Best Song Podcast. I hope you've been learning a lot about the history of the Academy Awards and the songs that received the nominations. But mostly, I hope you've learned a lot about the men and women who created the songs, because that's why I'm doing this show. In the previous 55 episodes, I've certainly been surprised by at least one tidbit unearthed in my research, and I certainly hope you found a nugget or two of information that has changed your thinking about a particular song or songwriter, for better or for worse. As we move forward, if you want to send me a question or comment, send me an email at jeffswim at aol.com. Thanks for singing along with me, and we'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.